1981, Dad had a newfangled fan-forced wood-burning heater installed into our beautiful open fireplace. This monstrosity caused a great deal of controversy at the dinner table that night, as everyone had a go at Dad for defacing what was the only nice feature of our home. His stubborn insistence that 70% of the heat from a traditional fire goes up the chimney as smoke did nothing to douse the flames of anger. So after dinner, I alone accompanied Dad into the lounge room to light his new fire. Not as a sign of support, you understand, but with a thrilling sense of scepticism. With the fire alight, the glass door closed and the fan turned to Max, I sat back and waited. After about 20 minutes, it became apparent that the lounge room was filling with smoke. Dad, I asked through the haze, wouldn't it be better to have this 70% up the chimney? He snapped, telling me to shut up and bugger off, but not before I saw the slightest smirk wipe across his face. He'd never been so proud of me. You see, Dad and I didn't have much in common except for this mutual love of being a smartass, and he taught me everything I know about its uplifting power as an art form. Which leads us to James, and his story of how the lessons learned from his dad helped him handle one of their family's greatest tragedies. Welcome to My Fucked Up Family. So, James, welcome to My Fucked Up Family. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. That's all right. You're more than welcome. Your story is, is quite interesting. It's one we haven't covered before, and so I'm, I'm quite keen to get into it. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your uncle and uh, his immediate family? Mm. Poor family. Two sisters, one brother, his mom uh, and dad stayed married till you know his his dad died as far as you know they were close i think that he was specifically close with my father so that they were brothers and they were they were quite close yeah they were pretty tight you know my father always spoke very highly of him that's where i know as far as like what i know about him it's it's a lot of stories a lot of like very in-depth kind of my father telling me about him kind of reassuring me of who he was, you know, because he wasn't necessarily, I mean, he was always very kind to me, mm. uh, but he was also very, you know, to a small child, he was, he was odd, you know, he's very withdrawn and, um, you know, kind of sporadic, but, uh, my father wanted me to know, you know, that's not exactly who he was, you know? Yeah. Right. So your dad grew up in a family of four then. Two girls, two yeah. boys. So was your dad uh, older than your uncle? Yeah, two years. Tell us a little bit about his uh, experience in the Army. Well, okay, so my uncle was a musical prodigy. He was, I, I think one of the coolest things is that he's three years old and he was asked to be in the high school band. Excuse me? He was three? Yeah, when he was, yeah. <laughs> and so he would go along, you know, and play the trumpet from about three to five. And that kind of led into him learning basically every instrument there was that he could get his hands on. He then got into guitar, uh, which he's self-taught musician, you know. He was playing guitar studio for people like Wilson Pickett and Otis Redding. I don't know. Really? Specific, yeah. But nothing like where he was famous or anything like that. But he did get to have like this life. That's what he was doing when he got drafted. Right. 
And so he got drafted into the Vietnam War? Yes. Right. And how long did he go off and serve for? I think it was a year, I think, something like that. But he came back and the experience affected him quite dramatically. Vietnam was specifically about, for people, the idea that we were in a war that we shouldn't have been in. And my uncle became like almost a radicalized hippie, I guess, to a certain extent. I mean, radicalized maybe is the wrong term because he didn't go out and like hurt anybody or, you know, really protest. He became a hermit of sorts because of his hatred for what his country did to him. Yeah. And he became like a conspiracy theorist watching, he would watch C-SPAN. And I don't know if you know what C-SPAN is. It's a nationwide channel that you can watch. Senate hearings when they're in session, anything that has to do with the government, you can watch basically Channel 5, and it's honestly one of the most boring things you'll ever <laughs> experience, <laughs> but he would sit there and watch it for days at a time. Really? You know, and we wow. would go over there, and he would pull himself away from that. It's like, I was born in 85, and, and the more, the older I got, the less he came out, so he was out of the war for a long time. So I'm not sure why there was such a, a drastic downward spiral from maybe, say, ages 5 to 12 at my age. Yeah. And, you know, going around him, because I do remember, you know, him pushing me on the swing and telling me, you know, stories and stuff about, you know, just making stuff up, being creative. And, you know, there was a time I went downstairs and at, at my grandparents' house, my grandma's house, uh, where I grabbed a shotgun and, and I was on the wall and I grabbed it. He, uh, he came downstairs, and I, I was always getting in trouble. And uh, he kind of, like, he got mad at me, but then he, he kind of softened, and he said, you know, you can't, this thing will hurt you. It, all it does is hurt people. And please, you know, don't touch it again, and it'll be our secret. So, you know, that was kind of, to me, that was who he was. That was a huge portion of who he was, this guy who didn't tell on me, you know, and treated me nicely. So when he came back from, from Vietnam, he went and lived with your grandparents then, did he? I do believe, see, my grandfather died yeah. uh, before I was born, and it was like when he got back, I know he tried to go in the world and, and make it on his own. And I know that through certain choices he made, it didn't work out, and his his alcoholism and his kind of uh, neurosis kept eating at him. So it was decided, I think, in the family that he would move in with my grandmother. Yeah. 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 And that probably was, she probably quite enjoyed that as well because, as you say, your grandfather had passed exactly. on. Then at least she had some company as well, I guess. And they, and like, I hate the idea of painting a picture that he was like, he was such a great person. And so kind to my grandmother and like would do, you know, go to the store for her, go make her drive, you know, got her her license, made her get out to the world. And I don't think that she would have done all that if she didn't have her son there to have her back. Yeah. And now I'm cheering up. Because, uh, you know, he did have these these qualities about him that made him kind of scary to a child, you know, sitting in a dark room watching TV getting mad, getting drunk, yelling, stuff like that. But at the same time, that is not even close to exactly who he was. Who he yeah, was that wasn't yeah. his. I think take a step back and, and look at the whole picture. And more specifically, like, for talking with you now, 
part of the reason I want to talk to you is because I would like for there to be some documentation of how even the greatest, best people, most well-intentioned can end up sad and alone because, you know, there's this problem in our society with mental illness, and I think that it really needs to be addressed. That was very beautifully put. Do, do you think, did, did his creative side make him incredibly vulnerable, do you think? Um, I think it does, especially growing up in the period that he did, when you have these issues and you're not really allowed to talk about them. I think that that probably did have something to do with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a time, wasn't it, I guess, when many kind of mental conditions were undiagnosed and untreated. Yeah. So tell us then, you're living with your parents mm-hmm. and you're close by? Uh, no, two hours away. Probably. Oh, okay, okay. So you're, you're a little while away. Um, but you're seeing each other um, regularly? Yeah, my dad, it was very important to him that we... Because, like, him and my grandmother didn't necessarily get along because of my father's view on Christianity. Um, he, she is very high, like, she was, she's now passed last year. Uh, she was completely devoted to uh, the Christian faith. Yeah. And my father really kind of saw it in a different way. And even though they had these, this very big thing that they didn't agree on, and a lot of people could utilize that to never see their parents again. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, he, you know, he, he took care of her as well as anybody I've ever seen take care of anybody. He didn't let that difference drive a wedge between them. No. And like my uncle going deeper into this hole, he didn't let that. Like a lot of parents, I think, would keep like their kids away from this guy who's drinking and stuff. But my dad, I love my dad, man. You got to understand. Yeah. Um, he didn't ever want his brother to feel like he didn't belong to our family. So, you know, I just, I don't, I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> no, neither, no, neither do I. The, no, well, I guess it was just the, 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 <laughs> fact, the fact that even though you're two hours away, your father's making sure that you're all still connected to the broader family and specifically to your uncle. Yeah, like 20, 30 times a year we drove down there. Yeah, right. Or, you know, we went, my dad would force my uncle to come to football games. You know, because my uncle would always say, yeah, sure, and then there would be this, you know, your uncle's not coming. And then my dad would be, like, driving, and he'd be like, you know what, fuck this. We'd turn around, he would go down there and pick him up, and we would go. Yeah. yeah. And I just, you know, stuff like that really kind of sticks with you on how to treat people. Yeah. I mean, that's really, really beautiful. I mean, well done to your dad to... Not... I know, right? He's yeah. an amazing person. I yeah. Mean, I mean, to not... That's ostr- also to why not... I wanted to talk to you. Yeah, to not ostracise. Well, not even ostracise, really. But it would have been so easy, being two hours away, it would have been so easy just to yep. drift apart and not have that yep. um, difficult part of your family be- yeah. become part of your everyday life. Yep. I mean, as I got older, it really, I mean, you're nailing it on the head. I, I came to these realizations like, my God, my dad was a Superman. I mean, he would work all the time to provide for us. And then he still made time to do all these things. Like my uncle would be flying off the rails and he would drive down there and say, he'd get off work at six. He'd leave at seven. He would get back at three in the morning. And, and then he would get up 
at 8 o'clock in the morning and go to work again. And he has always done it without even acting like it's a big deal. Just um, out of curiosity, your mum, how did she yeah. feel about the... the... <laughs> uh, she was always and always has uh, championed my father. She has his back uh, through anything. She did not like how my grandmother treated my father. Mm. She, because my grandmother would talk about how if you don't follow, you know, Jesus, you're going to go to hell. Yeah, right. And here's my dad going out of his way to make her and a part of our lives, all while being told that he's going to go to hell. Um, Isn't that just crazy? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean that's that's so really like, that's that's really mental when you when you think you know we're talking about mental illness and you go I mean for God's sake the man is going out of his way to do all these things that uh-huh. people say are Christian you know by by actually helping he is the most Christian person I've ever met <laughs> and he's not a Christian <laughs> you know my mom sadly she's a great person too but she's kind of had to you know everybody has roles and and if my dad's doing all these things. It's almost like she had to play the bad guy a lot, and I only didn't—I didn't really recognize that till I got older. Her natural self is a very nice, kind, outgoing person. She really kind of had to fight her nature, yeah, yeah. to be this judgmental type person in that way. And I think it did wear on her a lot. It's really interesting, man. Your your dad just sounds like a a saint. Um, yeah. <laughs> what is what did he do for a living? Out of curiosity. Uh, well, he he's an attorney. Oh. He worked um, pretty closely with the drug enforcement agency uh, for a long time, and then he. Have you ever heard of the movie To Kill a Mockingbird? Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> was he um, was he Atticus well, Finch? <gasps> yeah, my father tends to take cases that nobody else will touch. Right. Uh, because of the moral aspect. Um, people that are condemned by society because of the uh, pretense of the of the crime they're, they're accused of. Okay, so take us back then to that day, that Sunday, I'm presuming it was, <laughs> where you'd gone to your grandma's house, I believe. What year are we talking, James? 96. So just describe to us the day and, and what transpired. So this was like my first time going to church. So it was a big deal uh, for my family. And my, my mom went way out of her way to get us dressed up. It was very important that we got new shoes, new slacks, coats, stuff like that. It was a, I mean, it was a nice fall day that if a football game was on. Our, uh, my dad's favorite team was playing, I remember. But we're driving down, and he's having to miss this game, which is, you know, kind of a big deal. Uh, And when we get there, I will never forget, we sit down, and we're dressed up. (laughs) And this other family sits down, uh, comes through the pew, you know, has to walk past us, and they are all dressed in camo. So a family walked past, and they were dressed in camo gear? Yeah, camouflage, (laughs) Okay, head to toe. So, like, basically the pressure that my mother put on herself for us to look presentable was unnecessary. Yeah. And my father gave her this look that I'll never forget. It's a look that he gives her a lot, like this shit-eating grin, basically, that says, like, 
you know, I see, I see this, I see it, and this is fun, you know, and without making a big deal out of it. And it's just like, that's kind of who he is. And then to my mother's, I mean, she's always a part of a good joke, you know, she just starts laughing. And then I think at some point, uh, she's drinking a Coke out of a can, and the guy next to her uh, asked her if she's done with the can of Coke, and uh, because he needs to spit his chew into it. <laughs> Which made her laugh. <laughs> Which made her. I've got to say, this is this is not laughing. my this is not my idea of church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, welcome to the south. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's just, uh, and it was just. Um, it was my first and really only experience in church. I mean, I've been to church again and stuff, but like nothing was as I have I ever really gone and sat and listen to a sermon and watch them sing. I, that was a full-blown church experience, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how old are you again at this this point, sorry, James? Um, 11 or 12. Yeah. Probably closer to 12. Um, yeah, so then church is let out. My grandma sang in the choir, so she and she was super connected in the church, so we're standing outside and she's kind of talking with everybody and my dad uh, told me to go because she lived right across the street um, from the church and he you know smacked me on my back and said go over and uh, get your uncle ready for for dinner because my my uh, grandma was also a really good cook but we were supposed to get together and have dinner um, or whatever lunch it's called dinner after church for some reason in her house in her kitchen and so I ran across the street, I went upstairs, I, you know, called for my uncle, went back into his room, and then there he was. He's on the right-hand side, uh, sitting on the bed. Uh, there's a shotgun between his legs, uh, rest up against the bed. Um, now his foot is close, like his right foot was closer to the shotgun. I guess that's how he used it. Uh, his body was limp, um, and he was kind of laid back in a way that almost looked like, uh, like he was, like his shoulders were against the wall, almost like he was very relaxed in a way, and um, his head was gone, most of it. Oh dear. Well, it's just funny because now I'm thinking, like my dad really never, he never really had a problem with me and my brothers at whatever age like watching violent films as long as they were like good you know and so like if there was a good film he would let us watch it and so like when I saw this violence in front of me it wasn't something that I hadn't seen before and even though it was real it took me many years to really kind of accept the full weight of it and that doesn't mean that it didn't affect me because oddly enough I after that I kind of became more troubled as a kid and I don't I really I seriously cannot tell you if there, there's a correlation there the time is correlated you know at 12 to 13 I became basically a terror uh, but I just I I never really I mean the closeness that I felt with my father was almost nice. 
to to have him see me and see how I handled that, and it always kind of, I think, taught him what I could handle, I guess. Yeah. And so he never really worried a lot about me. And I think that that probably my reaction, the way that I handled myself during that situation, probably helped mold that opinion. So what did you do after you after you saw that? I mean, obviously that's like a, a tremendous oh, shock. I I honestly wasn't that shocked. I remember my dad talking about how my uncle wasn't well, and my dad had gone down on three separate occasions, like I had said, to go see him for wellness checks and come back late at night, go back to work. So I was very aware that my uncle was not doing well. And not I'm not tooting my own horn whatsoever. I think it's more of a testament to how my father raised me. I just was very aware and like able to quickly process what had happened and wasn't completely shocked by it. I was shocked that I had to tell him. Yeah. That's what I remember thinking more than anything, that I have to go tell him that his brother is dead. And how I knew, as much as my father tried to protect me from things, that that would hurt him. So tell us how 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 did you how did you bring yourself to do that? What did you actually do? Well, I mean, it's a, once again um, a testament to my father. Uh, I walk out, and he basically saw it on my face. I didn't really have to do much. I just went out there, and I think I said something like "Hey, Daddy" or something like that, and then he was like looked at me, came over, got eye level with me, because I, 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 I was still pretty short at that time. And he kind of just looked at me and then told me to get my mom and my brother, because my uh, younger brother wasn't born yet. Um, or he wasn't there, I guess. Uh, and get get them to go down the road. And my mom, I remember... Like, and I honestly, now that we're talking, it's kind of blurry as far as the rest of that day. Um, I know that my mom drove us home, and I know that I listened to the football game, and I know, like, who they played, but I don't remember getting home at all. I don't really remember the next couple of days even. You, you say that you you weren't shocked by what had happened, but clearly it you know, it did happen. Yeah, obviously I was shocked. I but you know I guess what I'm trying to say is like you know you you have this idea in your head that you see this thing and you just like revolt from it, you know, and you like break down. That's not what happened. I saw it. I looked at it. I I remember thinking about like the 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 stuff that was on the wall behind him and thinking about how that was what like made us have thoughts and be like different from each other and how that was like all gone from him. And then right after that, I remember thinking about how I was going to have to tell my dad. And so 
I just kind of pragmatically process those thoughts and feelings. And I didn't really talk about it with anybody for a long, long time. Not like I went to school and told anybody about it. I talked with my dad about it, I mean, later. Um, How did that terrible, terrible tragedy affect your dad? I mean, in a way, it's, you know, you're young and, you know, kids are so resilient. Um, but for your father, that just must have been heartbreaking that it had happened and that you had had to see the result. Well, okay. Um, right after that, my cousin, David, died from cancer. And that was a huge blow to my father because they were very close. Um, and like in a way that like David was like his son in a way. Uh, and I think that that kind of overlapped in a way that allowed for this tragedy to almost get swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of what the perspective that my family has about me, they kind of just always felt like I could handle myself or something because it doesn't make any sense that a 12-year-old could, like, handle himself because that's unbelievable. You know, that's like like expecting anybody to deal with that at any age would be ridiculous. But I think that it was never really addressed, honestly. Yeah, right. And how do you feel about that? that do, you, do you feel like it should have been addressed? I think that I've been able to go around processing it freely because of the way I was raised and the way my father taught me to be okay with emotions and be okay with, and be honest. So it's like, if anybody asks me, like, you know, how many uncles you have and how did they die? <laughs> I think it's you, honestly. But as far as how it is, I, I don't think it's necessary to, to just harp on something. And I think that the amount of attention that was given was enough. Yeah. I, I so get and what I, you, think, I so get what you're saying. I think that's I think that's incredible though, isn't it? Because it's such a balance, and 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 we're kind of in this day and age, we're kind of all taught that you've got to talk, you've got to talk, you've got to talk, and generally, yeah. I think that's probably a good rule. But then, you know, if if you are one that's very much in touch with their feelings and expressing them, then you only have to talk as much as you want to talk about it. Exactly. You get it, Paul. I think if he had sensed that I needed something more, he would have gotten it. And I think that a lot of the problems that arise later had nothing to do with this situation. Really? I had a lot of issues. Okay, so at that time, I was going to the school, and there was these two brothers, right? The younger brother was in my grade. The older brother was two years older, like my brother, and he was in my brother's grade. I was playing basketball one day. And this kid, the younger one, was playing too. And I was I was a very good athlete. So I beat him pretty badly one-on-one. And I was celebrating whatever, and he punched me in my face as hard as he could. And it didn't really hurt so much, 
and I went and I I was just shocked because I'd never really been in a fight before. My brother wasn't there. It was just me, this other kid, and then his brother. And basically, I was <laughs> told because I started to fight back. His older brother stopped me and said, "No, your brother is. If you don't let my brother do whatever he wants, basically, I'm going to hurt your brother. I'm going to kill him." I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but that's what I was told. Yeah, yeah. And so that was, I mean, you talk about my uncle, that was that was less affecting than this, this kid and his brother on me. So for the next three years, this kid picked on me every day and beat me many, many, many days until one day he fell in love with this girl who was a friend of mine, and she said, quit picking on him. That was the end of it. But I promise you, that did more to my mental health in degrading it than, than my uncle ever did. I mean, it actually sounds like it was a very small incident in your life when you think that it was actually going to be the most pivotal, but you don't see that? I think it definitely spawned a part of who I am. I think it reinforced the family. It, it, re, it really kind of created um, a space for me and my father to have like a, a relationship of like a certain level of respect that he has for me. He was always just very aware that I could handle myself. And I think that that is, I don't know, I don't think that would necessarily be the case if I hadn't gone through what I'd gone through. And then I also think that you could look at this and say, oh, I went through this tragic situation. Or you can say, well, I made it through it, and I made it through it because of these reasons. And these reasons are beautiful reasons, and they're just as important. And in fact, they're more important than the bad thing that happened to you. And I'm all about the silver lining, you know. Um, and if if I could take anything from it, it is that my uncle was very sick and sad. Then ultimately, like, all I can do is thank my uncle for the time that he did spend with me. How has that impacted how you view and treat people you see in trouble? I think, you know, the way that it's impacted me is that I think that a lot of people have a lot more strength than they know they have. And I think sometimes it just takes someone telling them that they have got them, that they're not alone. And, you know, because there's this, you know, this constant, you know, we're all alone, we come in this world alone, we die alone. I mean, that's one way to look at it. But, like, I'm a very team-oriented type of person. And just because somebody hits the game-winning shot does not mean somebody didn't set it up for them. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, if this taught me that I was strong enough, then there's a certain level of need to pass that on, I guess. Do you know, and I, I really do think that just that balance of not constantly droning on about something, but just addressing things honestly when questions are put, is a really uh, a wonderful thing that you've been able to to manage, um, huh. and a, and a really great just example of dealing with shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if anything, I think I talk about it too much, but that's because I talk about it at all. And I think that internalizing things and pushing it way down is, you know, if that helps you, then by all means do it. 
but this is what helps me, you know? And, you know, having this opportunity to speak with you and you're going to take this and, you know, possibly somebody else will hear it and they'll find something positive in it. You know, that's, that's a, I mean, I can't thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to maybe help somebody change their life or not necessarily that big of a movement, but just show somebody that there are people that exist that, you know, bad things have happened to, but that doesn't define who they are or their existence. Beautifully put, my friend. Beautifully put. Um, I I really did approach this story with trepidation because it is such a heavy topic. Yeah. And I've got no interest in sensationalizing anything. But it, it just, yeah. but yeah, but I just think your attitude towards towards it is just such an inter- interesting perspective, and it's been really great talking to you. Thank you. You, you too, Paul. Seriously. Um, so thank you, mate. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. James said it best, none of us are alone. If this episode has raised any issues for you, please call Lifeline in Australia on 13 11 14, in the US on 1800 273 8255, or the Samaritans in the UK on 116 123.